Hello, shit givers. This is Quinn. I am very excited to share a wonderful show with you today from two of our fan favorite former guests, Dr. Leah Stokes and Dr. Catherine Wilkinson. Their show is called A Matter of Degrees. A Matter of Degrees is a super cool narrative podcast. It helps listeners like yourselves and me understand the climate story in a much deeper way. Together, they explore the reality of climate denial and uh, delay. Uh, they talk about the solutions that are available and in motion already today. And most importantly, why justice and equity are so central to this fight. Dr. Stokes and Dr. Wilkinson incorporate just a legion of awesome, inclusive voices along the way to help give life to such an encompassing problem. And uh, I got to say, the result uh, from season one and now into season two is is truly a show that is uh, riveting and compelling and action-oriented. As they say, you know, it's a show for climate-curious people, folks like yourselves, and again, me, who, who know climate change is a big problem and are trying to figure out really the best way to tackle it. So you can see why I love it. And if you enjoyed our conversations uh, in the past with Dr. Stokes and Dr. Wilkinson, uh, you will love them together and spread across two seasons of truly fantastic work. Today's episode is from their new season, season two, and it's Dr. Stokes uh, at her best. She is breaking down this opportunity we have to design and implement uh, this thing called a clean electricity standard, or a CES for us super nerds, and how it it truly might be the biggest lever we have in climate action here in the U.S., and, and, and they talk about how much of a difference it can really make. So listen, the show is so great. It's already been highlighted in, in publications like Grist and The New Yorker and Gizmodo. It's a must-listen for me and for so many other shit-givers in this movement. Lastly, uh, the show is produced by PostScript Media, and they're just an awesome team packed with climate journalism and storytelling vets. So please listen. Please enjoy today's episode of A Matter of Degrees from Dr. Leah Stokes and Dr. Catherine Wilkinson, two of my favorite people on the planet. I've just learned so much from them, and I'm so inspired by them every day course, you can check out their show wherever you listen to your podcasts. Enjoy. You guys are like the intrepid duo over here, eh? Here we are. <laughs> I think that's the first time we've been called that, but I like it. <laughs> that's Jamie DeMarco and Quentin Scott, respectively. They work on federal policy for a regional climate advocacy group called the Chesapeake Climate Action Network. We've been working in Maryland, Virginia, the District of Columbia at the local level and in Congress to pass the strongest, boldest climate policy possible. Chesapeake Climate Action Network is one of the forces working behind the scenes for years on climate victories you've probably heard about. Halting the Atlantic Coast Pipeline in Virginia, passing 100% clean energy in D.C., getting the Clean Energy Jobs Act through in Maryland. The list is quite long. And earlier this year, they started to cook up another idea to help get bold federal climate policy across the finish line. One, we just threw a bunch of bad ideas at the wall. I'm not going to tell you all the ideas we didn't do because there were a lot of them, but it really came out of the idea that like there is a lot of support for this policy. They were trying to figure out how to support one of the key planks in President Biden's American Jobs Plan, 
a Federal Clean Electricity Standard, or CES for those in the know. This is the idea of getting our entire electricity system to run on 100% clean power by 2035. And one thing Jamie and Quinton noticed was how popular this idea is. They wanted to show Congress just how much people support the clean electricity standard. It really came out of the idea that like, there is a lot of support for this policy and people who I never thought would be supporting policies as ambitious as this are doing it. I mean, I keep, I read that the AFL-CIO of West Virginia is working adamantly for the American Jobs Plan, and that's what I'm waking up every day and working adamantly for. So they came up with the idea of rallying 100 people in front of Congress almost every week this summer with the goal of showing off the policy's broad support. The first event kicked off on June 9th. We started off with 100 faith leaders. But damage our capacity to drink clean water. Uh, then it was a hundred uh, small business leaders. The fruit of our labor or enjoy the beauty. People just got excited about it and we were like, okay, we're on to something. This is it. And then we just start running with it and getting people on board. Two thirds of clean energy workers work for companies of less than 20 people. That's small businesses, folks. So what does Congress need to do? Pass the American Jobs Plan. Then they had 100 union members, but it didn't stop there. The events just keep rolling. We're doing 100 West Virginians, 100 health professionals, 100 uh, youth, 100 frontline communities. 100, it's a powerful number. It's a lot of people, but not everybody. Like, it's manageable, but symbolic and important. I think it's a magic number. And I'm just so glad to sort of be in that unified front. And I don't think enough people know that story. We wanted to tell that story. I've been really excited to see more sectors united around ambitious climate policy than I ever thought possible, and especially when combined with 100% clean electricity by 2035. I, I can't fall asleep at night. I'm so excited about it. This is A Matter of Degrees, Stories for the Climate Curious. I'm Dr. Leah Stokes. And I'm Dr. Katherine Wilkinson. Well, Jamie and Quentin's enthusiasm for the clean electricity standard is pretty contagious, Leah. But before we get too far into the weeds, can we take a step back? And can you tell us, Leah, what the CES is for listeners who might not know the details? Well, great question, Catherine. You know, sometimes I just dive in with both feet. So a clean electricity standard is a core idea that's baked into President Biden's American Jobs Plan, an idea and really a whole policy approach that he released at the end of March. That plan calls for 100% clean electricity by 2035. Essentially, it would require utilities who generate and sell power to clean up their electricity system, you know, increase the percentage of clean power every single year until they hit 100% clean power in 2035. That makes total sense. So we've got more and more and more of the pie being made up by clean electricity as the years go on. And I totally get why hundreds of folks would be showing up to Washington to support this. That does sound like the stuff of Leah Stokes' dreams. It so is. And, you know, if the number 2035 is ringing 
a bell in our listeners' heads. It's because we talked about this idea last season in an episode called An Electric Number 2035. So go back and check out that episode if you want to get the kind of background on where this idea came from and where it's been going. Back when we made that episode, of course, President Biden wasn't President Biden yet. And so the 100% clean electricity target wasn't a White House policy. It was just a campaign promise. Produce power without producing carbon pollution and electrifying an increased share of our economy will be the greatest spurring of job creation and economic competitiveness in the 21st century. That's why we're going to achieve a carbon pollution-free electric sector by the year 2035. We need to get to work on it right away. And the idea of a clean electricity standard, you know, it didn't just start with President Biden. This is an idea that exists all across the country. By last count, 11 states have targets to hit 100% clean electricity in the coming decades. And actually, more than one in three Americans already live in a place that's on that pathway to 100% clean power. It sounds like the states have been a really cool testing ground for this, Leah. So how did it go from state agendas to the federal agenda? Well, there have been so many groups like the Chesapeake Climate Action Network or Fresh Energy or the Southern Alliance for Clean Energy, all these regional groups that have been working for years on these ideas. And it started to get into the Democratic primary conversation when Governor Inslee was running for president. We talked about this idea last season in an episode called An Electric Number 2035. It came out of the Inslee campaign and out of the ideas of Sam Ricketts and Bracken Hendricks, among others. And then Senator Elizabeth Warren adopted it, and it just started to grow from there. And when it became clear that the last two gentlemen standing were Senator Sanders and then Vice President Biden, they came up with a unity task force. Do you remember that, Catherine? I do. I remember that being a really exciting milestone in the whole evolution of climate policy during the campaigns. Yeah, totally. You know, there were so many young people and the climate movement overall putting pressure on then Vice President Biden to really step up. And one of the ideas that came out of the Unity Task Force, which included people like Sunrise co-founder Varshini Prakash and Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, or as we know her, AOC, one of the ideas that came out of that was, hey, let's hit 100% clean power by 2035. And now look how far we've come since that task force, which was cementing an idea. Now we've got 2035 in a mainstream policy proposal. I know this idea is really coming to life. And I'm so passionate about this because cleaning up our electricity system is what I like to say the first linchpin in economy-wide decarbonization. It's how we tackle the climate crisis. Cleaning up the electricity system is one of the most powerful tools we have because it allows us to clean up our transportation sector, our building sector, parts of heavy industry. When you do the math, if you add up clean power plus electrification, you can get to up to 75% cuts in our carbon pollution economy-wide. And you are super passionate about CES as being the policy direction to get us to those critical electricity cleanup outcomes. 
How would the CES work to get us there? Well, as we sort of talked about, it would set targets and timetables. So it would say to utilities, hey, where are you at today? You know, nationally, we're at about 40% clean power right now. And so let's take a utility that's a little behind the curve. Let's say they're at 20%. We'll call them Utilities Are Us, okay? And the Utilities Are Us company is, is, you know, having a rough go of it. And we would say, okay, Utilities Are Us, next year, 2022, you got to be at 23% clean. And then we'd say the year after, you got to be at 27% clean. And we would keep going along this trajectory all across the country until we're at that 80% clean power by 2030, directly on that pathway to 100% clean power by 2035. And, you know, the nice thing about how this could work at the federal level is that it would be an investment-oriented approach. This is an idea that if a utility makes progress, the federal government can help them out. It can say, hey, we see what you're doing, and here's some resources to help you solve your problems, whether that's making sure that electricity bills stay low or buying or building clean power, or helping to retire some of those old coal plants that a lot of utilities don't really know what to do with. I'm sort of imagining Utilities Are Us going on like a Candyland board journey. That's like, (laughs) you gotta get here, and then you gotta get there. And if you get there, you might get a treat, actually, along (laughs) along the way. Exactly. It is a performance or a reward-based idea, right? We I often call this idea carrot forward, right? <laughs> now, if you don't make progress, there would still be the stick, so to speak, right? There would be a uh, penalty for not making progress. But I think, you know, the really big part of this is about investments. It's about those rewards. It's about saying, hey, let's all move in the same direction together. Let's help the electricity system be that backbone of decarbonizing our economy. You know, let's let's get this done with support from federal investments. I have to say, as someone who really is obsessed with horses, a carrot forward approach seems like <laughs> a very, very good one, Leah. <laughs> Yes, every every horse, every utility can get the carrots if they just jump over the hurdles. That's the idea. And it's not just you who's excited about the CES, right? No, it's a really popular idea. A lot of groups have been polling this. Probably the one that's done it the most is Data for Progress. They've actually run a poll with over 18,000 Americans at this point, and they have found that 61% of voters, likely voters, support the government moving to 100% clean electricity by 2035. It's a really popular idea. And what they show is actually that Democratic support is well over 80%. Independence is over 60%, and even four in 10 Republicans like this idea. So if you look at the state level, we're talking about a majority of people in all 50 states who want to move to 100% clean power. Well, this is starting to sound more and more like democracy, Leah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, wouldn't it be great if we could get it done? And so in today's episode, you know, inspired by the work of Jamie and Quentin, I wanted to tell the story of some of those people who are excited about the clean electricity standard, people who come from really all walks of life. And we found a couple people to do just that. I am uh, Rev Yearwood, president of the Hip Hop Caucus. 
My name is Lauren Monis. I am Sunrise Movement's Advocacy Director. My name is Angie Rosser, and I'm the Executive Director of the West Virginia Rivers Coalition based out of Charleston, West Virginia. Each of these people come from really different parts of the country. They have different backgrounds, but they're all excited about the idea of a clean electricity standard. And so I wanted to talk with them, each of them, about why they support this policy and what it would mean for our climate future. For Lauren Monis of Sunrise, the clean electricity standard is about holding political leaders to the promises they made on climate during the election. I grew up in South Florida, and the reality of the climate crisis was at my doorstep every day from a very young age. Yeah, I, over time, understood that the elected officials that were in office representing me were actually, like, fueling and worsening the crisis that my community was facing and got pretty politicized also at a young age uh, when I realized that. And that was around the same time that Trump was elected. And I became clear to me that, you know, (laughs) like here and there, actions and letters was not really going to cut it. And we needed a like transformation of the entire economy. And as you know, initially, President Biden didn't have an electricity specific target when he was running for president. What do you think about this idea of getting to 100% clean power by 2035? I'm glad that Biden recognized that he was elected on such a clear mandate to address the climate crisis and that he didn't shy away from that commitment and is actually still being vocal about it. Um, I think it's up to us now to make sure it's not watered down by any means and actually strengthened. Yeah, it's not just going to be the electricity system, right? It's going to be Mm -hmm. the clean cars that plug into that grid and the clean stoves, induction stoves and Mm -hmm. heat pumps in our houses and even parts of heavy industry that are going to run on this clean power, not on coal and gas and all these fossil fuels. Yeah, I think right now we're at a pivotal point where we could look back on this moment and actually like look at our success of restructuring a more just society. Like when Biden says build back better, like I really think that we can have a totally new era for this country that isn't about pollution to other countries or outsourcing pollution to black and brown communities in this country, but instead actually generating wealth from those communities. You know, the previous time we had this opportunity, the Waxman-Markey bill. Oh, man, the Waxman-Markey climate and energy bill that got through the House in those early days of the Obama years and then failed in the Senate. Yep, those were some tough days back in 2009. So hopeful and then so disappointing. So many of us in the climate movement are still reflecting on that time and what lessons can be learned from the Waxman-Markey fight. When you think back on that moment that you that you didn't experience firsthand, but when you read about it, how does that make you feel about the urgency of the moment we're in right now? So I think Sunrise learning a lesson from Waxman-Markey as we apply it to the clean energy standard is that we want to inform our base as, around a clean energy standard as it relates to the fight for the big vision of the Green New Deal and transitioning the entire economy and away from fossil fuels. But we actually don't want to get too wrapped up in, like, the technical fight, because that 
is actually not energizing to like an entire youth movement and outside groups. And so the way that we've been kind of straddling all of this is really putting pressure on Biden and other congressional leaders. Yeah, I just feel really grounded in the fact that we can't let that happen again and we need to be vocal and unified and pushing from the outside um, and doing whatever it takes. You know, Sunrise is uh, committed to doing whatever it takes. So Sunrise is really eyes on the prize, no compromises, no excuses. We need to pass the full vision and commitments from the American Jobs Plan that Biden was elected on because that is the bare minimum (laughs) to address the scale of the climate crisis that we face. We find ourselves, as Lauren is saying, in a really urgent moment. We have to get a climate bill passed this summer. The deadline is at its latest, September 30th. And that's because we've got to do it through an obscure process called budget reconciliation. Bonk land. <laughs> Hang on, Leah. Talk to us about why budget reconciliation is a better process for CES than, say, just passing legislation in the Senate. Well, I don't know if it's better, although it does have some advantages. It's the only viable way to do it. Budget reconciliation is a way that the federal government can invest, can spend money or raise revenue or do both. And it's the way that you can pass a bill through Congress with just 50 votes. Isn't 50 votes always enough, Leah? Maybe for your schoolyard vote or for the vote in the House of Representatives. But when it comes to the Senate, there's this thing called the filibuster. And what it means is that you actually need an arbitrary number of 60 votes in order to pass any legislation through what we would call regular order. Now, if you don't want to go that route, you can spend money with just those 50 votes. And when we do that, that's called budget reconciliation. Got it. And we've got a 50-50 situation in the Senate right now. So I understand why this is the path forward. Exactly. And so I wanted to ask Lauren about the urgency of this summer for climate action. You know, what's the best outcome we could see? What do you kind of see unfolding in the next couple months? What would be the best outcome, do you think, before the August recess, let's say? Given the political reality that we're in, I think the best outcome is probably to have progressives really sharply aligned on their top demands at the intersection of climate and economic justice and good job creation that are popular and rally around those and demand that they are included at the full funding levels that we're demanding. So, you know, that's around maybe some public transportation investments, some public housing investments, building public renewables. I would definitely include a civilian climate core in there as well. And let's go down the darker road together. What if we don't get this passed? What if we don't get a clean electricity standard? You know, for me, I think about the 230 proposed gas plants that are in the queue to get built, right? The 100 gigawatts of about gas plants that were built over the last decade that we need to deal with. All the coal plants that we built decades ago, and then we mm-hmm. sunk 
another tens of billions of dollars of debt into those plants. All these problems that we have with our dirty fossil fuel power system right now. What do you think the stakes are if we don't get, for example, the clean electricity standard in the American Jobs Plan or the overall American Jobs Plan passed? Yeah, I don't like thinking about that because I need hope (laughs) to do this work. It is hard work and it's the only thing that gets me through. But yeah, I think that young people in our movement will be even more upset um, and translate that into even more righteous anger and organizing. The lack of leadership or the lack of success, given the stakes are so high, can actually be that moment of like bringing more and more people in because that's what it will take from the outside. And I think organizing and direct action will be required to actually like shift the conditions to hopefully then passing a clean energy standard, you know, in the next years of decade. Congress, <laughs> administration, decade. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. It's honestly really horrifying to think about that failing again to seize a window of policy opportunity for climate. And I think Lauren is exactly right that this organizing and organizing from the outside will have everything to do with what the outcome is. It is a scary moment that we all find ourselves in, but it's also a moment of opportunity. And that's because a lot of elected officials have stepped up and said, we must pass a climate bill this summer, a bold climate bill. Evergreen Action and Sunrise have been tracking this, and they have identified 14 senators who say, no climate, no deal, that if we don't have a bold climate package, we are not going to be passing an infrastructure bill or really anything else this summer. And I got to talk to one of those senators who's right in the front of the pack of leading the charge for climate policy. This is about electric cars. It is about changing the way we heat and cool buildings. It is about how we power our industrial sector. All of that can be enhanced by a clean electricity standard. That's Senator Tina Smith from Minnesota. In 2019, she introduced a bill pushing for a clean electricity standard. It was pretty bold, aiming to reduce emissions from the power sector by almost 80% by 2035. But now, she says, we need to go even bigger and even faster, like President Biden has told us. I recently spoke with her about how the CES could work through budget reconciliation, not just for the power sector, but for the whole economy. And what it does, essentially, it says we are going to have an investment-based approach to this. We will pay utilities when they achieve their goals of reducing carbon emissions. And we will also penalize them if they don't achieve those goals. Now, why is that such a big deal? One, because it gets us down that curve faster, and we need to get down that curve faster. Two, it helps to keep utility prices low, which is a really, really important part of this strategy. And three, it has a really powerful impact on the jobs that we need to create and the cleanup that we need to do in communities that have been so negatively affected by fossil fuel pollution. And it can be part of a strategy to make sure that those communities that have been part of the fossil fuel economy that's made sure that our cars run and our lights go on have a transition that works for them. And I'm really excited to talk more about it and tell people more about it. It's no accident that the clean electricity standard 
um, is included in the American Jobs Plan, because the idea here is to build forward out of the pandemic in a way that increases more opportunity and more equity for more people. If we can get to a place where we need to get to, where the supply chain for the wind and solar equipment is a, is a United States supply chain and not a foreign supply chain, that creates incredible opportunities in manufacturing. We also need to make sure that these jobs are good jobs, that they are wherever possible union jobs. So that is all of the power behind this idea. So we've got youth, unions, utilities, senators. A lot of folks are behind CES. Who is not behind CES, Leah? Well, there are still some question marks about if we can get this over the finish line. You know me, hope springs eternal, and I think we can do it. But a few moderate Democrats haven't clearly stated one way or the other if they're for it, even though we're seeing all this broad support from all across America. Let's name some names. Who could still be swayed to join the CES party? Well, the biggest and most important one is Senator Joe Manchin. He's from West Virginia, and he's also really important because he's the chairman of the Energy and Natural Resources Committee in the Senate. That's the committee that would actually decide on the clean electricity standard. And it's also the reason why Chesapeake Climate Action Network is partnering with groups in West Virginia to hold one of their rallies on the Hill with West Virginians, a hundred West Virginians symbolically representing the broad support across the state for this idea. And that's why I wanted to talk to somebody from West Virginia, Angie Rosser, director of the water conservation group, West Virginia Rivers Coalition. She has some insight into how Senator Manchin thinks and also into the economic challenges and opportunities before West Virginia. What do you think is sort of the opportunity in a big, bold, clean electricity standard like this for West Virginia. How do you sort of think about this opportunity when it comes to cleaning up our grid? Well, the way I think about it for West Virginia, I mean, you know, we're unique and have a unique challenge because as a state, we are currently so carbon intensive, right? We need to, we need to make some changes. And that means that there's potential and increased opportunity, I think, for investment in that transition that is going to create the high-paying jobs. So knowing that something like a transition towards cleaner electricity will require capital investments, will require new technologies, will require new forms of energy development and infrastructure in places like West Virginia is, again, a chance for us to bring new jobs into our state and rebuild our economy. So that's the first thing I think of on on the plus side. Leah, this is a this is a complicated issue for in a place like West Virginia, right? Because we have been so culturally defined and share a, a deep-rooted identity in coal mining and a pride and a heritage. So it is challenging from a social, cultural, definitely economic way to think about what does this mean? I mean, it, it can be a scary thought when people from out of state or the East and West Coast are telling, we we need to accelerate to clean energy. And, and people back here are thinking, well, what does that mean for my job and my family and my community? Am I just going to be left out? Am I going to be left behind? 
But what I'm counting on are, are people like President Biden and Senator Manchin, who's in a key leadership position to make sure that West Virginia doesn't get left out. I think that's so right. And, you know, the policy can be designed, a clean electricity standard, to make sure that jobs and projects are going to places that have this historic carbon intensity, we could say, or historic fossil fuel extraction jobs. It can be designed that way, actually. And I think that's really important. You know, it's one thing to say, we're going to build clean energy jobs and hope they end up in your state. And it's another thing to really deliver them and making sure that they're delivered for a place like West Virginia is really critical for how we think about this policy. That's right, Leah. I mean, it's going to have to be an intentional effort. You're right. We can't just hope for those jobs to come. We're going to need targeted investments. And, you know, those are the kind of policies that I'm interested in how you direct investments into the communities that need it most. There are different reasons that different communities need it most, but West Virginia should be on that list. I think, as you said, something like a clean electricity standard can be designed and flexible enough to address this reality. And this has to be, this transitioning of fossil fuel communities has to be part of any type of clean energy or climate solution. It's just essential. You know, there's been a lot of polling about public support for the clean electricity standard. And what we're seeing in the polls for West Virginia is that a majority of people support this idea of a clean electricity standard. I was just wondering, have you talked to people about it in West Virginia as an idea or the American Jobs Plan overall? Do you think there's support? Do you think people are seeing this kind of vision for what could be possible? I think people are accepting that something needs to change, that we just can't keep relying on the same kind of industries that we have been so dependent on, that we need to diversify the economy, that we are literally seeing the effects very visibly of the decline of the coal industry in in our communities, and that we know we need to bring something different. So I think there is this growing acceptance of the time is now to change and embrace a new way of envisioning our future. Now, what gets hard is explaining these policies. I mean, we've, we've and that's why I'm appreciative of your podcast. It's how, how do you break this down for people? I mean, clean electricity standard, you hear that. And most people I talk to don't know, what are you talking about? <laughs> what is that thing? And I, even myself, I have a hard time explaining exactly what we're talking about and how it's going to get done. But we looked at the American Jobs Plan and starting talking to West Virginians about that and, and breaking down some of the policies and programs. Something like broadband, right, is so relatable inequities around broadband were magnified to such a degree during the pandemic, an understanding that that is just a a fundamental piece of how to build out an economy. I'm always challenged to find ways. What what are those common values? And it's jobs is pretty much what is in the forefront right now of people's minds and wanting to give their kids a reason to stay in West Virginia. So when we have the clean energy or the climate conversation through the lens of jobs and job creation, that's a different conversation than, oh, we're just another war on coal. 
And obviously, you've got a very important senator right now who's a pivotal vote on so many of these issues, not just because he's a really important 50th senator on the Democratic side, but also because he's the chairman of the Energy and Natural Resources Committee, a really important committee in the Senate, which will preside over a lot of these questions about clean energy and and jobs. And so how do you think about um, Senator Manchin's critical role in this whole American jobs plan, the clean electricity standard, all these kinds of things? Well, it's amazing to see, right? Because Senator Manchin is is a well-known public figure in West Virginia. He he's been a public servant for much of his career. Um was our governor and and then went into the Senate and had had a political career before that. So, you know, to see him on national news every day <laughs> is like interesting and quite surreal. People have different opinions, disagree, agree with him on different policies, but I think there's agreement that he he is there to serve West Virginia. He has West Virginia on his on his mind when he is weighing decisions as much as he has the country in mind. And and just the fact that a senator from the second uh, highest coal producing state is chair of that energy committee and in, in the middle of these climate debates, to me is maybe a really good thing because if we can work this out and make sure places like West Virginia is taken care of in this policy debate and the outcomes, that should have some durability, right? That should be a lasting thing. What do you think the stakes are right now? Are you feeling optimistic about getting this over the finish line or how, how do you feel about things right now? You know, I do some swinging back and forth on that, Leah. I I generally am feeling optimistic. I guess my fear is is that I just don't feel at this moment we can go halfway. I just don't think doing <laughs> the minimum on climate or taking like some steps is going to be enough. I just I'm worried it won't be the scale to really take hold. So if I had five minutes with Joe Manchin, <laughs> that's what I'd say. And he probably would guess that for me. Go big. Go big, Senator. I think Angie's last point here is really important because the dynamics that make this moment critical, right? The need for transformation, for vision, for boldness, they are not just about climate. The extractive economy has failed to take care of people, of communities, and certainly the planet. And it's really clear from what Angie shares that West Virginia needs Senator Manchin and all of his colleagues on the Hill to go big. That incrementalism is meeting this moment with some kind of sad whimper when what we need is a roar. Yeah, we need a big, bold climate package to pass this summer. And we don't just need that for the states you and I live in, Georgia and California. We need that for West Virginia, too. I feel like Angie had so much insight into the opportunities that really could lie ahead if we could pass a bold climate package. Yeah, we need to be taking care of all people in all places, especially those who have been really bearing the brunt of the current fossil fuel economy. Absolutely. And that's why I think environmental justice is another part of the story that we have to tell. It has got to be at the core of the American Jobs Plan. And the clean electricity standard has to deliver real pollution reductions in communities of color, those communities that have been carrying the burden of pollution in this country for decades. 
So I wanted to talk to somebody who has been working in environmental justice for well over a decade, a faith leader who attended one of these 100 for 100 rallies and is up to speed on the clean electricity standard. And he likes to go by Rev Yearwood. And his climate work started in the wake of Hurricane Katrina way back in 2005. The road when I came into this movement, per se, is when I saw primarily my friends and family drowning in the richest country in the world. And for me, it was, it was always personal because it was just an issue of, of justice, but it became even more personal when I saw particularly black people and poor people floating down the street in New Orleans. And so I've been engaged ever since. So that now will be uh, 16 years this year. And so I've been in it for 16 years. So you participated in an event with a bunch of other faith leaders, 100 faith leaders for 100% clean electricity. Can you tell us a little bit about what that event was like? I'm going to say this off the bat. You know, faith people, we believe very different things. And so that's a good environment for Republicans and Democrats, because if you're Jewish or Buddhist or Muslim or Christian, and Christians got a bunch of different folks, they got Protestant, they got Catholics, then they got other folks, got different folks, and they got Sikhs. Listen, they all believe some radical different stuff. Some stuff to each one don't make no sense. But if they can come together and put that to the side and then all be on the same course because we need to have a CES, a clean electricity standard for all of us, no matter what you believe. I think the one thing that's important about faith, if if you are agnostic or atheist, it doesn't really matter. I think if you have something that you want to pull on besides yourself, there's just a faith that this can be better. So, you know, one of the things that we're seeing with the clean electricity standard, if we do modeling that can predict what this policy will do, is that we're seeing it would double clean power by 2030 and would cut carbon pollution by 86 percent, sulfur dioxide pollution by 93 percent, and nitrous oxides by 76 percent just in this decade. And, you know, the pollution impacts from our current fossil fuel energy system hit people of color, hit low-income people the hardest. So if we clean up our energy system with a clean electricity standard, what do you think it will mean for these kinds of communities? Well, you have to understand that, one, how we've dealt with the environment in this country is that we have, for some reason, and a lot of it deals with racism, unfortunately, is that we have literally attacked low-income people of color and vulnerable communities, attacked by putting pollution in those communities, thinking that they were the path of least resistance. And that's those are some of the folks who have lost their lives, not only in looking down the road, but right now. And so what this means literally is life or death. It literally means that the difference between asthma and cancer and, and emphysema and any many other diseases. It literally means that folks won't miss work. It literally means that children won't be dying because of asthma attacks. It means so much. This should have been front and center 50 years ago. And I think, to me, it is outrageous, to be honest, that we waited so long for our inconvenient truth to not only be the climate crisis, but not to only include racial justice and white supremacy. And I think it's unfortunate. And I think that the climate movement has a lot of answering to do to that as well. And I know that they always want to come around and say, well, we got to get it done, Rev. And 
you know, we gotta get this policy change. But I heard that back in Marky Waxman, right? In twenty in twenty ten. And so here we are eleven years later and and we still having the same conversation. So maybe it's time that we gotta change up the game plan and and change who is actually the one leading this movement and and the ones who are because I think the ones who are hurt first and worst are BIPOC communities. And I think also what we're seeing now, unfortunately, because we're explaining the CES, we're we're explaining the clean electricity standard, and we're explaining it in a way that we're still trying to convince people. That means that means the movement isn't broad enough, and that means we have to do a better job of broadening the movement so people understand that when I say we need this, they understand it's life or death. They understand how much it'll make their lives so much better. And I think that we're asking the world to transition from fossil fuels to clean energy, but sometimes we're not willing to transition ourselves from how we're set up. Our own standards need to change. I really appreciate that. I saw an event that you did about, you know, we can't breathe, and you it was there was some film in it where you were in a community and you were asking people to stand up if they had experienced asthma or I think cancer, and it was really powerful to see how impactful pollution has been on people's bodies in communities of color. And just having people stand up is like the whole room was was standing. And yeah. those perspectives are not always in the environmental movement to the degree that they need to be. No, but Doc, we got ourselves why. Why was that obvious? Why do we need so many amazing activists from Jackie Patterson, Elizabeth Yampi, I can the list is so long, Dr. Wright, and and so many Black, indigenous, women of color, Tara, and so many. Why, why haven't we lifted those voices up like we needed to? Why are they screaming to be heard? Why, why is it so easy for, to be honest, our white counterparts to speak and have platforms? But why are our comrades, our folks who we side by side, linked arm by arm, why are they screaming, literally screaming to be heard about the, the destruction in our communities? And I think we have to have some real conversations. And, I, and I'm hopeful at this moment right now, I, I believe we're in a moment where racial justice is climate justice and climate justice is racial justice. Yeah, I think that's very powerful. So what are the stakes here for the American Jobs Plan this summer and with the, with the clean electricity standard being a part of that, but other things like Justice 40, the Civilian Climate Corps, building electrification and weatherization, high-speed rail? You know, what are the stakes this summer for the American Jobs Plan? Stakes are high. Stakes are very high, you know, as a person of color. My whole life is based around passing legislation so that I can just be free or equal a vote. <laughs> and all of those things are still under attack. And so, you know, CES is right there with it. Because if I can't breathe, then I can't do nothing. So stakes are high, and we need folk to fight like they're high. And we see that. And I, my hat does say no climate, no deal. And many others are adopting that because they understand the stakes are high on this and that we don't have the, the, the room to fail. What, what I am concerned about is the climate dilute phase of this is that it may be a want to dilute it so much that it becomes ineffective. And that's something that I think, or even pull out climate completely and say, well, yes, we can build bridges, but we don't need anything. But you can't, you can't do that. So, and there's a lot of other factors involved. Because you also, you have Senator Manchin and you have others who, you know, have their own perspective of how this whole thing should work. So that becomes, you know, becomes even more complicated because of that too as well. So, 
we're in some rough waters here, Doc. So do I think this will pass? I mean, the policy wonks out of me will be like, it's going to be tough going. The faith side of me, you know, so like little two little people on my shoulders here, little, there's the, 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 wonk, the wonky rev and then the faith rev. The faith rev will say that, uh, come on, rev, when they told you that Keystone XL was a done deal, Secretary Clinton at the time was going to sign the paperwork. It was done. You, you hung in there uh, with so many powerful indigenous warriors and so many different folks who came and got arrested, and we stopped that. And then they would, the face out of Rev would say, well, come on, Rev, when, they, when you were staying out there in the cold with your sister Bernadette Dementiff from the Gwich'in tribe, and they told you that the Arctic was a done deal and, and nothing you can do about that. And then now those leases... And no longer in effect. And they would, the face side of Rev would be like, well, Rev, there was a, put that pipeline down in Virginia and Duke and Dominion, two of the most powerful energy companies, were going to do the Atlantic Coast Pipeline. And some folks, some black folks, some white folks, some poor folks, climate folks all came together and, and they stopped that. The impossible happened. So listen, if we can stop Keystone, if we can stop the Atlantic Coast Pipeline, if we can stop the drilling in, in the Arctic, well, shoot, let's go ahead and get us a clean electricity standard. Why not? Let's add that to the list. So the faith side, faith rave was all in. <laughs> I love the way that Rev gives voice to courage and especially the courage of the collective to do things that seem impossible, to stop things that seem like a done deal. And he calls that faith. And to me, it also sounds a lot like linking arms with life force, right? The most powerful dynamic on this planet that life keeps propelling forward to more life. And I think that human beings at our best, like we are part of that. And it seems to me that a clean electricity standard can be part of that. There's so much on the line in this moment, and it's so easy to turn towards despair if you're looking at the heat waves or the drought or the fires. Climate change is very present, very scary, and really sad. But Reverend Yearwood reminds us that we need courage. We need hope. We have to keep imagining what kind of world is possible if we act now. And that was why I wanted to ask each of our guests to imagine the world in 2035. What would it look like if we hit this goal, if we got to 100% clean power by 2035? And so if we, if we think about like our, ourselves in 2035, right? Like let's say we actually managed to get this thing over the finish line, which is hard as you know. What do you feel like the world would be like in 2035 if we had 100% clean power? What what would it look like for you? Like, what do you think life would be like if we had this clean electricity system then that powered our cars and our homes and parts of heavy industry and became this backbone to deep decarbonization across the entire economy? Yeah, I think about communities, especially like black and brown indigenous communities working-class communities not choking on polluted air every single day and not drinking polluted water and having homes to live in that are are safe and, you know, grids that can be resilient and powered by distributed renewable energy. 
I see solar farms being a part of that. That would help power some of our more rural areas, bring reliable energy there, bring more clean manufacturing there. But, you know, mainly I, I see... I see healthier people. <laughs> I see I see families who aren't having to struggle with seeing their loved ones sick with black lung disease because they've had to mine coal underground for decades. Um, I see less pollution. I see less asthma. I, I mean, we have some real health issues as well as economic to address, and here's a way to, to address and improve them both at the same time. Before I get to what the world would look like, I would grieve a little bit for the world that that should have been. And even this year, when we had babies and children freezing to death in Texas because of not having a grid, and as you know, in your amazing book that you wrote about that whole process in Texas, that those babies shouldn't have died. Those babies should be kicking it right now. Um, And because of our craziness, we're all accountable. We have to be, we have to face that, that those children, when they froze to death and they took their last breath saying mommy or daddy, it's on us. So let's keep it 100. And then hopefully if we get a little sane and get beyond the garbage so that we can make sure we're transitioning from fossil fuels to clean energy, but we get this done, then clearly the world simply on this, this plan begins to operate how it should be operating now in 2021 in 2035. So literally, we're, we're still behind the mark. Like, we're literally putting together the grid. We're literally putting together the standards. We're literally putting together things where we should have been now. That should have been put together back in 1995 for 2021. But instead of that nonsense that we did back then, we're now trying to get together standards for 2035 that we should be having right now in 2021. So I'll be happy. I'll be elated because I know that we're creating a, a system in place that will help us to live. I mean, hopefully, I mean, I'm still young enough. I'll, I'll, I'll be here, hopefully, but I'll still be kicking it. Let me be very clear. Putting together the clean electricity standard ensures that not only are we fighting for equality, but we're fighting for existence. That's what's at stake. Wow, these folks lay out such a powerful vision of what our future can look like, what we can grow if we embrace a policy like the clean electricity standard. And I know, Leah, you have been living and breathing CES. It has felt like night and day, day and night, all the time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So my last question for you is, is there real legislative promise to get it into law and to seed this future that these folks imagine. Certainly, there are plenty of people who seem skeptical about getting it passed, even through this more optimal route of budget reconciliation. Yeah, a lot of people are skeptics, but with me, hope springs eternal. And I don't just hope, I act. Every day, I try to get this clean electricity standard a little closer into reality so that we can live in the world that Lauren and Angie and Rev Yearwood told us is all possible. I admire so much, Leah, the way that you just dig in and keep on 
the path because we don't know what will happen, but I think we all want to feel like we showed up to give it our best shot. Yeah, I know for many elections in America that I have lived through, I have always wanted to feel like, no matter the outcome, that I left it all on the field. And I feel like in this moment, for all our listeners, for everybody in the climate movement, you don't want to feel like there was more you could do. You know, you want to feel like you stepped up for the American Jobs Plan, for the Clean Electricity Standard, for the Civilian Climate Corps, for clean drinking water, for pollution reductions, you name it. There's so many things we've got to get over the finish line this summer. Yeah, you are totally putting back on the top of my to-do list, Leah, that I need to reach out to my congresswoman. I need to reach out to my senators, and I need to make sure that my voice is heard in this critical summer for climate policy. And I hope all of our listeners will do the same. Yeah, you know, it doesn't take long. And our senators, they need to be hearing from us right now. They need to hear that we need a clean electricity standard. We need a civilian climate core. We need 40% of these climate investments to be flowing into communities on the front lines of pollution for way too long. And we need to end fossil fuel subsidies. All of these things, they have to be in the climate bill which needs to be a big, bold investment package at the scale of the crisis. And there's actually a new and easy way for all of our listeners to reach out to their senators. You can just go to callforclimate.com. That's call with the number four, like four demands on climate. Dot com, and you pull up this website and you can see a list of those big four demands on climate and it'll help you make a call. It makes it super easy. There's even a phone number right there. It's 202-318-1885. And if you dial that, it's going to patch you right through to your senators. So don't hesitate to pull out your phone and dial that number. It's easy and it will make a really big difference. And you know, at this pivotal moment, we're all asking ourselves, Can we do it? Can we get the climate bill over the finish line? And so I asked that to Quentin and Jamie, those fine gentlemen who are out there leaving it all in the field every week with their 100 for 100 rallies in front of the Capitol. And here's what they said. What do you think the odds are that we get this thing across the finish line? Trying to get 80% clean by 2030 directly on the path to 100% clean by 2035. Yeah, I think that's likely. <laughs> likely being? Uh, yeah. <laughs> it got to be very cautious. But if I'm going to bet, uh, yeah, I would bet that uh, by the end of this year, we'll get uh, 80 by 2030 through reconciliation. I'm willing to put my paycheck on the line for Your that. Your whole paycheck? <laughs> what? Oh, my God. <laughs> Um, I think it is more likely than not that we win. I would say two to one odds that we win. All I'm trying to say, Leah, is that we uh, got to take nothing for granted. Nothing is pre-written. The one thing I think everyone learns as they get more and more involved in advocacy and politics, the more you're like, wow, nobody knows what's happening next week. Like, this is just a chaotic world that is like chaotically unfolding. And we have to like put everything we have on the lever towards good chaos instead of bad chaos. Yeah. And it means that what we do matters. Showing up for these events matters. Organizing events yourself, making a phone call or writing a letter to Congress about the clean electricity standard or the American Jobs Plan. It matters, right? Every little piece that somebody says, you know what, I'm going to do something. I'm going to pitch in. It does make a difference. Yeah, it matters so much. It matters so much. 
Degrees is co-hosted by me, Dr. Leah Stokes. And me, Dr. Katherine Wilkinson. We are a production of Postscript Media, podcasts for a changing planet. Jamie Kaiser and Dalvin Abuaji produced the show. Stephen Lacey is our executive editor. Sean Marquand edited, mixed, and composed our theme song. Additional music came from Blue Dot Sessions. Emma Swanson did fact-checking. The show art was designed by Carl Spurzum. Our website was designed by Caroline Hadalak-Sono. Thanks to our funders and supporters who make this show possible. The Sunrise Project, Northlight Foundation, McKnight Foundation, Bloomberg Philanthropies, The 11th Hour Project, and UC Santa Barbara. If you're digging the show, please hop on Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating or leave a review. And come back soon as we tell more stories for the climate curious. Can I just tell y'all that, like, Lee has like, roped me in to caring about the Atlanta Hawks, which I really have not done since I was a child and I was obsessed with Spud Webb. <laughs> Are you, is, is your sport a, f- a football thing? What oh, is this is sport? basketball. What this is the NBA. About? NBA playoffs. See, that's what I'm saying. I didn't even know that was basketball. <laughs>